0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Danielle. And Danielle was married to an abusive addict. It's a story of facades, criticism, silent treatments, withholding, disappearing acts, and hindsight. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Danielle. How are you?
1: I'm really well. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Well, thank you for being here with us today, and if you want to be a guest on our show, like Danielle is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There, you will see all of our instructions. Please read them all and either send us an email at at NarcissistApocalypse.gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. So today, you're going to hear Danielle's story. And this story is a story of... Addiction in a lot of ways, but it's also a story of seeing things in hindsight of what was really there the whole entire time. And we hear a lot of stories, you know, when people say trust your gut or your your gut feeling is telling you something. But, you know, during the love bombing stage and during those times where you're seeing a future and all the things you ever wanted, a lot of the time we're focused on something else and that focus takes us away from the little things that might be there and this is one of those stories and this might not be the most conventional format it might seem like it's conventional but you'll eventually understand how it will get a little bit unconventional along the way but uh, it's just a really interesting story to hear you know for especially for those people who didn't fully know what was going on, and this will be a very, very validating experience for you to hear. So, a big thank you to Danielle, and now I'm going to get out of my way and your way, Danielle. The floor is now yours.
1: So, I'll start at the beginning with my with my childhood. Um, I was always, for as far back as I can remember, kind of the opposite of chill um always had my head in a book always worried about something um I was I had an always on kind of panic button and wanted to wanted to run faster try harder do everything better than than all of my my peers from a young age I um I actually skipped grade two um, because my teacher had identified that I might be a little bit bored if I stayed with my peers because I was always looking for the harder thing to do and uh, and do it a little bit better. I was a runner, and I'd mitigate some of the stress I had by running through the forest and, and the trails. And I would always hear the same words, that I have to get first, I have to get first. Um, I ran cross-country, and poured every piece of, of myself into every race. And no matter what happened, I was injury prone and always covered with scabs. And it didn't matter if I, um, I had a migraine or if I had a twisted ankle, I would always persevere, keep going, keep going. Um, I always thought it was kind of a part of my nature that I was just born this way. But in retrospect, I can see my dad was, was a perfectionist. Um, and he also had substance abuse issues with alcohol. But when he wasn't drinking, he was just a really intense perfectionist. And I knew that if I got first in my races, if I was really good in my class and I, I was at the top of everything, that he would, he would love me and he would, he would be there for me. Um, my mom was kind of in the background and, and always supportive, but really because my dad's approval was was so give and take and 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 not not a given like hers. it was it was really his that I sought. And I think because I didn't have it all the time, that when I got it in small doses, it made me feel so very good. So if I could just get past, you know, the little girl in front of me, he'd be proud of me for the car ride home. Um, if I knew that I had good grades and I remembered to be respectful and call everybody by Mr. and mrs and and not complain um that it would be all right so i didn't know it back then but on those podiums when i had that first place medal around my neck um or after i'd let someone beat me and it was a terrible car ride home where i wouldn't get spoke to i formulated the whole premise i guess for the rest of my life that if i try the hardest and i push through the pain and i ignore all the things that hurt my big toenail falling off or that that kid at school who's making fun of me for being such a super nerd, um, then I would be loved by my dad. So I was a super nerdy looking kid. I had uh, really, really big teeth and gaps in between them and, and skinny legs. And I always had these calves hanging off my kneecaps because I was always miscalculating space. I had my head in a book, but I was also always falling down. I was taller than all the boys in, in my class. I think in my grade seven photo, I was five foot seven. So, um, much, much taller than, than any other kid in my class. And I remember I was so scared of, of getting bigger and getting taller. And the high school dance especially stood out to me because, um, how would I dance with a boy whose whose head was underneath my neck, um, I always had girlfriends, always had lots of friends because I could mock myself and I was always willing to take wild risks for either laughs or for bonding. So um, smoking cigarettes in the bathroom, sneaking out of the house in the middle of the night. I was kind of the plotter of of things that I would do with my friends that could be a little bit more zany. Um, But I I never really had approval of the boys by the time I got through grade school and into high school. My dad really didn't pay as much attention to me anymore. My grades were always good. I had this secret life of debauchery that I would, I would play out on the side, but my dad was really obsessed with my brother's hockey career and making sure that he got hat tricks, many goals a game. And he'd really kind of moved on from me. So I was just left to to smoke the secret cigarettes with my friends and kind of figure out who is going to bootleg all of the super sweet ciders and, uh, and cheap beers this weekend. So I could drink enough to garner courage to catch the eye of a, of a boy who, who might look past my skinny legs and my, my too tallness. So it worked every once in a while, but generally I was, I was the dorky nerdy funny girl. Without a boyfriend, but I, I sought validation in these boys with, with their baggy jeans and their sullen attitudes and their their cigarette breath. And and the less interested they were, um, the more that I would kind of try to plot a way to make them see me in some way, um, through alcohol or or maybe through my my friends somehow. So somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought if I if I get Faster, if I get prettier, if I get smarter, or if I drink enough to make them think that I am those things when maybe I'm not, I'll, I'll be able to have that boyfriend. And when I have that boyfriend, then this this satisfaction, this this love that I'm craving and that I want will will come to me. Um, I think throughout my entire childhood, my heart had a hole in it that I thought could be filled, but it needed to be filled with the love of of a, of a man.
0: So already at a young age, you have a lot of perfectionism, you're feeling like you are not good enough, you're needing validation that is outside of you, you have a poor self image of yourself, you feel awkward, you also have uh, an empathy for addicts and you wrote me that you had a thing for wounded birds and at around the age of, you know, late teens, early 20s, 20 years old, something around there, you start to get noticed by boys and that's a really big change. And you eventually have a string of relationships, one of which you were cheated on and you were heartbroken over. And you also eventually have a son named Nolan uh, when you had a relationship that didn't work out and that relationship was with someone named Bobby, and this person was fun, but as soon as Nolan was born, he really didn't have an interest in being an adult, and he was a drinker, and that brings up wounded birds and empathy for addicts, and this person had a hard time holding jobs. You kind of stuck around as long as you could, but eventually you decided that it was best to be a single mom. So at this point, I guess, how are you feeling about yourself and what are you looking for in your future? And and did you see a future?
1: I felt like a total failure at this point in my life. My dad did not approve of the fact that I was unmarried with a a little baby. Um, He was barely talking to me. Uh, My work had suffered a little bit because I had a newborn and was trying to figure out how to work and, and support him. And my heart was broken. I didn't trust myself anymore. Um, My relationships were kind of a string of failures and I didn't trust myself to even try to have a new relationship. I think at that point I thought I'm done. And also who's going to want me? Like, especially now it was hard enough before, but now I have a baby and the father who doesn't want us and a, a history of of men who've either cheated on me or who i really wasn't good enough for so at that point i i relied largely on my girlfriends but i really believed that i would be alone for the rest of my life and i actually thought that i would be okay with that i i remember writing a ton in those days and taking my son out and trying to go on long walks in the forest and figure out how could i just be happy with myself i was drinking too much too i remember getting into into a bottle of wine and having a couple glasses and then feeling like i couldn't stop and just crying and crying and crying and thinking god like what this is i thought it would be so much more beautiful than this you know this this life i can't believe this is all there is to it so i had moved away Um, from Bobby, once uh, the separation became final, and I was living with my brother. My brother's four years younger than me, and he'd always had great luck with the ladies. He was a professional sports player, and he had this shiny blonde hair and this unflappable confidence just really opposite from me, and he said, you know, Danielle, you're like a bit of a wreck here. It's just you don't ever leave the house. You've got a baby constantly in tow. Like, look, do you want to be crazy cat lady in 10 years? Um, or do you want to get out there and see that if, if you can meet, like a guy who will actually treat you well, you think that you can get out there and, and date someone who will be good and good to you and Nolan. And then he, uh, he convinced me to sign up for an online dating profile. So I, uh, I met Matt. When I was 32 years old. So Nolan was two and a half, and we'd moved provinces, as I said, to be closer to my parents, more specifically, my my mom, because my dad was still fairly disapproving of the fact that I was a single mom, didn't have tons to do with me. But my mom was able to help me balance work in a toddler, like on my own accord. Um, I was trying to figure out a way on this online dating app that I could attract someone a little bit different, like no more broken birds and, and no more person that I thought I could fix with the right amount of, of attention. And I, Bobby had chosen alcohol and chosen freedom um, over, over us. And so I, I, I wanted to meet someone who would put us as a priority and, and be able to kind of give, give us his, his everything. So I met Matt when I got onto the online dating site, plenty of fish um, for the very first time. So I was actually writing a column at the time um, and the column centered around it was, this was my part-time gig. It centered around single mom dating and I would write about um, my experiences. So uh, I met Matt thinking that I would potentially write about this guy because in his profile picture, he was wearing this like little minuscule uh, mankini, so a tiny little bathing suit. And he had this like not even a six pack. It must have been at least an eight pack. He had these chiseled cheekbones and these big green eyes. And it almost looked like what now we'd say this is definitely a catfishing image and put it into, you know, Google, Google search and, and he wouldn't be real. But um, I, I met him. And uh, I was, he took my breath away with how beautiful he was. And he took my hand, we went for a walk, um, and he, he told me about his life. Um, and he had this sort of inexplicable, familiar magnetic energy about him that I still find hard to describe. But he told me his life story on our first date. Um, about his exes, about his history with drugs and drug abuse and with his mother who was volatile and could be terrifying. And he'd been wronged so many times in his life, but he didn't tell me about the times he'd been wronged in a way that was accusatory or self-serving it was just really matter of fact and he was so beautifully understanding of this wretched behavior he described um he had been a model and he had met his first wife um, when they were modeling and um, on the runways together in their early 20s and she they had uh, a shotgun kind of quick wedding when they were in their early 20s and um, totally in love. And she'd ended up cheating on him with her rich boss and left him. And I was just so appalled by the behavior he shared of of his ex and how beautifully understanding he was um, of her. And the fact that he took such rare and alarming ownership for his own mistakes. So he admitted that he'd had some issues with drug addiction in the past. And as a result, that had ended up in some misbehavior on his part to his ex-wife and other women. Um, but he was through all that now and and really regretted the past. At the time, I think I thought that he recognized something in me, that he was sharing this story in me because he recognized my hurt He could see some of my pain because he'd experienced his own. And perhaps that's where some of the familiarity was. I'd always been like an observer and a writer. And I felt like his sharing of his story was something very special that he was really only giving to me because he understood that I was in a position to receive it and understand it. And I remember thinking after that first date that I'm healed. Like I do recognize uh my past and what i've been drawn to because now this is someone really different like this is this is someone who is vulnerable and real and open and someone i i've never experienced that before
0: did you think that he was a bird that needed to be fixed a broken bird or did you think that he was already healed
2: i thought he was already healed
1: he openly shared with me uh, that you know i had I had substance abuse issues and I went to rehab and I am through those issues now and in my experience with the Broken Birds who did have substance issues um you know they all said they didn't have any um that there was no problem and this was just having some fun and any issue that I had with substance abuse um was because I was a control freak I was you know it was because of my own past with an alcoholic father so for for Matt to come out and say, look, I did this, take ownership of it and, um, you know, talk to me about how he addressed it. That represented healing. And to me, it it showed me that this is the person um, that I've, you know, this is the kind of person that I'm supposed to be with. And obviously I've done some right things in my healing
0: journey. So here you have someone oversharing on date one. They're portraying themselves as someone who has uh, done the work, someone who's been through the same things as you have, but they've done the work on it. So it makes it look like that, like he has emotional intelligence. And that's something that every relationship in your past was uh, lacking. So you might be getting the same type of person, but they're wrapping themselves up in a different type of package. So it's really difficult for you to see. And now there's this whirlwind going on and you're in the middle of that whirlwind. So that makes it even more difficult to see anything. So, you know, a lot of the time, you know, you're focused on something else within that whirlwind. And for you it will be this addiction part, uh, uh, mostly. So was there also like a big hook, line and sinker event? or a moment where you were just saying to yourself, I- I'm all in?
1: Um, Matt said to me, you know, you've saved my life. I've I've never, ever met anyone quite like you. And those words, I've never met anyone like you, are what I've been waiting to hear my whole life. Um, I was just, it, I remember the butterflies when he said it, and this gratitude I felt, and that I couldn't kind of stop crying. Um that this, this man saw me and, and loved me and didn't want any improvements or for me to change to make him happy because he'd already battled all of his demons. So, again, red flags in retrospect, but within two months of meeting, he'd moved in with me and my now two-year-old son. Um, I finally felt like I understood what real unselfish love looked like, and I couldn't believe my luck. Everyone just could not believe that I'd met such a wonderful man. And I remember my mom, I, um, we were at our family cabin and I was hanging out on the grass there with my son and Matt, and she was just watching us. And she said, afterward, you know, I, I see the way that he looks at you. And she had tears in her own eyes. And she said, he is the first man that I've ever seen that, that wants to help you. Nolan, <laughs> my son, absolutely adored him, um, wanted to go everywhere that he went. There was no jealousy at all. He just fits seamlessly into our lives. I had one girlfriend and she happened to be, you know, one of my closest girlfriends. And she was the only person who expressed any kind of doubt. And she said, I know that you are in love with this guy. And I, I hate even saying this, but something just seems off with him. I am ashamed now to look back on it but I cut her off. I just I thought she was jealous. She was also a single mom. She wasn't in a relationship and I just thought that she was jealous. I hoped she found someone wonderful but I really didn't want her to interfere with any of my happiness with Matt. So we had a really whirlwind relationship. We started getting into um into CrossFit and exercise. I was understanding of matt's past and i knew that he'd had addiction issues of course and i also knew by being with so many people that had had addiction issues in past that you've got to keep busy you've got to keep um full up of other things so we delved really deeply into exercise everything that we did really revolved around our fitness and what we put in our bodies and i thought this is a good way to bond um as a couple but also to keep any demons at bay. Um and it did it pretty successfully for the most part. Um there was a couple of slips in the early days after Matt had moved in with us once when I went on a business trip and I tried to get a hold of him and I couldn't and uh, realized that through my brother who lived downstairs that Matt wasn't at home, that actually he'd left my son with my, my brother and and taken off somewhere. Um, it had been a slip and he said that, you know, um, I had taken some Valium and I had a little bit of wine. I had a slip. I'm so sorry. And we moved on from that. I just thought, okay, slips happen. You know, we've, we just had some, some big, big life issues happen. So that's, that's okay. And 90% of the time, he was a wonderful stepfather-like figure to my son and a really great partner to me. We laughed a lot. We could talk about anything, um, and he seemed really in love with me as, as I was with, with him. So we got married in the winter of 2011 um, just by ourselves uh, on, a, on a tiny, cold beach. So my brother came with us and his girlfriend and his girlfriend's daughter, but we didn't include our parents, and that was in part because Matt's mom was was volatile. So she could be completely fine and actually super warm and charismatic and uh, and lovely. And um, Danielle, we're so glad to have you as part of part of Matt's life and and part of the family. And then some days she'd be inexplicably just this of of rage and not want anything to do with us um, i had never seen anything like this you know my my own father could be could be hard and could be volatile growing up but he always had reasons for that volatility so matt had explained that you know his mom had always been that way and that her abuse of his own father was a, a just a background of his childhood um but you know, the most important part was that my son was there. And the the best part of that ceremony was that we had these little glass jars. And uh, we had different colored sands. And we would all put a little piece of our sand in that jar that was held by my four, four-year-old son. Um, and he was just so happy. He kept looking at us both with a smile on, on my face, on his face. And uh, it was just, it felt like the culmination of all of my dreams. So, so yeah, we, we went through with it and I, I got pregnant with my second baby boy um, just three months after our wedding. So we had, we had talked a little bit about maybe having uh, a baby of our own. Um, you know, Matt really loved my son. Um, he wasn't sure that he wanted to have his own um, his own children but I thought you know he would be such an amazing father and also he was four years younger than me so um, I knew that if we were going to have children that we would probably want to do it sooner rather than later so I pretty quickly got pregnant and we moved out of the house that I'd shared with my brother in the basement and we bought this tiny little house on the ocean and it was surrounded by the forest and this really tranquil bay, um, towering mountains in the background. Um, we both had six figure incomes. We were both working for tech companies. He was in, um, in the technical component and I was in the sales field. We were super active in our fitness community. And on the outside, we just, we had it all. Um, our friends would frequently ask us for advice as they were getting, getting married and into relationships themselves. You know, how do you guys do it? I would write these long posts on social media about how grateful I was for this beautiful man and this family. It, because of my past, it didn't escape me that, you know, I, I had something very, very rare and very special. I didn't know why I had it, but um, I, was, I was really grateful for it. Um there were these moments when when Matt's addiction came and reared its its head again but in general life was really good and I was really grateful for a partner who was willing to help with the the kids and around the house and seemed really proud of of me and and devoted to his whole family
0: so when those episodes happened when the addiction reared its ugly head were they day episodes, were they benders of any sort and how were every, how is everything smoothed over uh during those time periods?
1: So they weren't frequent at all. I would say they were once every 7 or 8 months there would be what I what I came to call episodes. And uh an example of an episode um would be um when I, we had a daughter after our son was born. And when she was very small, um, she was, uh, she was a, a tough baby. So she was up in the night a lot of the time and I was the primary caretaker. I was, I, I breastfed and I would take her in the night when she complained a lot of the time. There was just one night when I was so incredibly exhausted and I didn't think that I could open my eyes and and go and and comfort her and I said you know Matt will you get her I'm just so tired and I remember he stood bolt upright and you know cursed at me and uh and fuck you and you're you're complaining and um god damn it and I was sort of in shock and lying there and next thing I knew he was out of the house and I could hear his truck in the driveway backing up and he was leaving. And this wasn't the first time this has happened, but it was the first time in about seven or eight months. So I went and I got my daughter and I comforted her and I went back to bed that night knowing that he would probably be gone for the entire weekend. And he was, and I wouldn't hear from him. I would maybe get a text message with a, a kind of cryptic message. I'll be back on Monday, or it could be "And I'm sorry. Thank you for taking care of the kids. I'm not doing very well. Um, I would say, you know, be safe. I am here with the kids. I'm here when you want to talk. I would really never get angry during these episodes. I would just want to make sure he was alive. They would alarm me more than they would make me mad. And in this case, um, when he had left after our daughter's crying, he came home, you know, late Sunday night um, with tears in his eyes, saying, I'm so sorry. I I just I get overwhelmed by it all and I I love you guys and I just needed a couple days to chill out in a hotel room and um and I'm sorry and I would hug him and he would come back and then it would be you know okay for another several months until the next kind of episode happened
0: So a lot of these episodes happened when you were traveling for work words are being thrown in your direction, not the kindest of words. Uh, You're being blinded by the addiction aspect of him, uh, the emotionally intelligent part of him, uh, the person that looks and sounds like that he does the work. The way he looks is a part of that too, and I've seen a a picture of your ex and i'd say that uh, using the word hunk would be uh, an understatement uh, you were also a people pleaser and a caretaker type so you've fallen into this role here and you come to him with understanding and compassion and empathy cuz that's just like who you are and and nothing's really focused on other things that might be going on or other sorts of problems, because you're always looking at him at this understanding, compassion, empathy, because you like uh, broken birds. So explain how you're feeling or what's going on in your head, like when you're addressing these episodes at this point.
1: I I wanted to make sure that I didn't anger him with any kind of accusation or any kind of, I knew, I knew I think intrinsically like that that would be the beginning of the end. Um, so I always tried to keep it super light. And even, you know, when I was in LA and I suspected that he'd been drinking or doing drugs, something was off in a text that he'd sent me. I was so careful about like, Hey, have you been feeling sad and maybe wanted to drink? Um, Sometimes I would send those messages, though, just asking the question and the phone would just be silent. Um, I couldn't get a hold of them, but I knew that it wasn't just me at this point. It was the kids that he would stay home with. So it wasn't OK for me to not at least ask the questions anymore. But again, I just I, I didn't want to upset him. So I had a couple trusted friends and sometimes when I was in another city, I'd ask them to, you know, pick up the kids from daycare, or maybe could they check in on that and make sure that everything was kosher. At this point, a lot of my really close friends, my three best friends specifically knew, um, you know, that there was some weird stuff that sometimes went on on the weekends and that he wasn't totally past his addiction. So they would be there to kind of keep an eye out. Um, I I knew, uh, you know, a couple of years on that, he was doing drugs basically every time I went on, on, on the trips. And um, he promised, like he said, he, he wasn't drinking when I wasn't home. And he knew that specifically drinking would lead to drugs. But um, those promises weren't kept. And it was getting increasingly difficult for me to not make the accusations. And so I would resort to writing it down where I felt I was much better um, writing him a letter than then verbalizing it to him so um yeah i wrote one of these letters to matt shortly um after our son was born and i had been on a business trip and it was i've got the date stamp of the letter it was 306 a.m. when i wrote it um a couple of months uh, after our son was born he wasn't he was about 10 months old and uh I'll read the letter. So Matt, I've been up all night in a position that's now become familiar for so many of my business trips. I'm trying to understand why this keeps happening. I think of all the times I've had to rush out to meetings in various cities because you went missing while I was away. All of those other times I worried sick that you might somehow hurt yourself. And and now there's another person in your care and another person that I feel powerless to help. When you and I started dating, you said I helped save your life. You told me about the voices that you heard in your head, the times that you'd hurt yourself because of your deep pain and the devastating loneliness and hopelessness you felt. I was horrified and I wanted to be there for you. And I knew there'd be some bumps along the way, but I thought we'd ride out the bumps. Together, we've weathered a drunk driving charge, a night in jail, a party gone wrong in San Francisco, a ruined Thanksgiving dinner, and a quick departure from another food conference after a scary night. And I'm trying to understand why it just keeps happening. I thought we were over the hardest parts. I feel like it's been proven that nothing good comes out of alcohol when I'm away. And I hope desperately that it might be different now because of our baby. I planned a night out for you for your birthday next weekend with every luxury that you could imagine. And I wanted to try to find a way that you might. Want to keep sober while I was gone so that I wouldn't have to spend the entire night stressing about you. You looked me in the eyes and made me a promise, and that meant everything to me. But last night, you called me a fucking bitch and told me you would take the baby to Orange County without me. You said things that the gentleman I married would not normally say. And so I sit crushed and sleepless again on your birthday when the only note I planned to send you was a loved one. I'm worried about the baby. I'm worried about you. And I'm worried about myself. I'm looking into flights home and I'm seeing what I can do. Please let me know that you're okay and that our baby's okay. So I sent that and there was no reply for hours. And I texted again after that and said, please, are you up? And then I put my phone next to my head by the bed. But of course I couldn't sleep. Oh, so I I do get a reply finally the next morning at 9 26 a.m and it's from Matt and it's it's just a couple lines I can see that as I open it up and it says enough you are a constant reminder of mistakes made in my past I've had enough I had some friends over with your brother to hang out and instead got in a fight with you on the phone the sleeping baby is of course fine and I am not birthday event equals cancelled Your email and rush to get home reaffirm your inability to trust me. You continue to treat me like a teenage boy, and then you hide behind all the things I shared with you about my past. The fact that you think you are a more fit parent than I am is one of the worst insults you can give to your partner. So I read that, and I can still, it's more than 10 years later now, and I can still feel the absolute shame I felt reading that, thinking, Am I am I a control freak and am I horrible for not for not trusting him? He is trying to be a good father and and he was with my brother. Um, And so, you know, maybe it is okay that he just had a couple of drinks. But then I think back and I am so confused because I know that it was just you know, the month before that we'd had this really heartfelt discussion after another slip that he said, I will not drink anymore. I know this is bad. I know it leads to terrible things for me has led to chaos so many times. And I, I thought when I, as I reread this letter that, you know, I've misunderstood, um, he must have just thought it was fine. And, uh, but then why was his tone so volatile when I was trying so hard to keep disappointment? Like maybe I wrote the letter with the, the wrong tone or something. So I wrote him back one more time. And I said, but how do I trust you when you keep telling me one thing and then doing another? If you're breaking promises to me, as soon as I leave, how do I know to trust you? As far as I know, you never used to lie to me. Your raw honesty was one of the things that I fell in love with immediately. You're entrusting me with the information about your mistakes made me feel like I have a job to do to help keep you away from all of that shit. And when I'm away, not only am I helpless, but you seem to want to party hard, which is historically the exact thing that leads to this messiness. I love you. I love our family more than anything on this planet. And I know that the only thing that could destroy us is the same stuff that has destroyed so much of our lives already. And because It has happened the same way so many times. When I'm away, I naturally think about the potential of repeating the past pattern. I don't know exactly what triggered the last few times, so I don't know what might trigger this time, except maybe alcohol, which is why I was so worried last night. I think you're an incredible dad and you know that. And the reason I want to come home is because I want to protect my family and because ultimately you matter much more than my job or anything else to to me in this world so he didn't respond to that one at all. Um, I don't think I expected him to. And then, um, when I got home from that particular business trip, he just froze me out for about a week. Um, so he didn't say anything to me. He wouldn't look at me. We didn't celebrate his birthday. He made it clear that I was an asshole and that he wasn't sure, um, if he wanted to be with me. So I spent that that following week, trying to make it up to him by, you know, taking the kids out of his hair, making fancy dinners, working extra hard at the gym, trying to look really good. Thinking, I only care about my family. This is the only thing in the world that I care about. And so I am going to do everything I can to keep it in place. So I'm trying to plot and devise ways that uh, I can make Matt happy, that we can figure out a solution. So I'm incorporating therapists and at some points he's amenable to going to therapists who might be able to help because i still believe that at the end of the day matt is a very good person and he's just he's not addressing something from his own childhood or from his own past that is bringing up these compulsions to do drugs and do alcohol and i am thinking that it is the drugs and the alcohol that is making this happen so i Recruit a breath worker to work with both of us, a naturopath to talk through any foods or or um, dietary considerations that he might be able to take, that I can take, that I can heal from my own, you know, um, issues with control and that he can and use to to help with with his compulsions toward drinking and, and doing drugs. Um, so. We have therapists and we're talking to them. And ultimately, I think that if we can go deep enough, that those will help. The breath work too. I think that if we're, we're doing that every day and that we're doing that together, again, that, that, might, that might help. But I'm also taking secondary measures, such as when I went on my business trips, I would, put, uh, I would put an iPad in the back of our car so that I could see if he was heading towards downtown where I knew that he bought drugs. So that if I saw the car from my meetings in another city moving in the direction of the drug hub of our city, I could call one of my good friends to go get the kids at daycare. Or I could figure out a plan B from wherever I was to try to make sure that everyone was protected. Because at that point, I still was not willing to exit. I still had hope um, that he would get through this and revert to the man that I met on the walk that first day.
0: So we will eventually get to the event that becomes the beginning of the end for Danielle's story. However, uh, let's discuss something that you said there, which is you hope he reverts back to the man you met that first day. And we've been hearing the noise. You heard the noise. You saw the noise, the noise being these addiction episodes that have become more frequent, the noise of his behavior becoming more erratic. Uh, Obviously, we're hearing a story about addiction, and there's addiction in it, but it isn't fully a story of addiction. Uh, Usually, we discuss different types of traits and behaviors of abusers or people with certain uh, personality disorders early on in the format of this podcast, but with Danielle, I think think it's now most appropriate to discuss things right here because in Danielle's story everything was eventually seen in hindsight and right now we're going to kind of look back at all these things in hindsight. So before we get to the ending of your story Danielle we are going to look into the rearview mirror and that is really saying to ourselves, who was your ex-husband really? And when you're seen in a way that you always wanted, and there's this whirlwind, and he has what seems like a high emotional intelligence, and there's this life that you dreamed of that you're getting 95% of the time, that's something that is hard to let go of. And the addiction aspects of things is the part that you are focusing on as the fault of this person. The intelligence around that gives a bit of a facade and the caretaker and people pleaser and the dream of what you wanted takes over. But the one like big question is, the one thing is, is this person just an addict? And am I just focusing on the addict part of them? What else am I missing? So now I am posing this question to you, and this is way easier to do in hindsight uh, for everyone who's listening. It's very difficult to do while you're in the relationship, specifically this one, when your focus is really hyper focused on this addictive part of who you're dealing with. So before we get into how your whole entire story ends, tell us everything that you believed that you missed.
1: So there was
2: always a sense that, um, that he was going to um, and should achieve any, any kind of goal that he set or any kind of job that he wanted or any, any kind of thing that he coveted. So um, he worked in technology and interviewed with some very large and prestigious technical companies. Um, I remember him coming back from the interviews and being, I, yeah, um, I nailed it. And, uh, you know, I know that they can't wait for me to start. They were really impressed with me. And, of course, I thought, yeah, absolutely. You are, um, you're brilliant. And um, I remember particularly um, there were a, a two, two very large technical companies that um, he, was, he was wanting to work with and were both after him. And they both, in the end, after two different panels um, of voting, decided they didn't want to hire him. And it wasn't um, a reticence on his part, wondering what did I do wrong. It was coming home and saying those people are complete idiots. Someone uh, on that panel doesn't know what they're talking about and um, just really uh, upset at the fact that somebody could miss his his brilliance and actually that ended up in in weeks of of being upset and kind of taking it out on us and uh and trying to assure him that yes he's totally brilliant and and yes they missed it um at the gym too he was always the guy with a shirt off and i always thought that you know that's a that's a workout thing and that's a, that's a guy thing a little bit but in retrospect it was kind of the first thing that he did was uh was was take off his shirt and and kind of peacock and take a lot of um a lot of pleasure in anyone who would comment on his on his physique
0: and uh, would you ever kind of exert your own um intelligence and how did he feel about your intelligence um
2: Uh, My my intelligence is more creative-based and people-based and empathic, but I've always done very well at my own career and in my own education. Um, And when we were looking to solve a business problem that he had or something in the home, I would be a little intimidated by him um, and and not want to come across too aggressively. And um, I remember one day saying, you know, I, I think I am as smart as you like in a different way obviously not in the mathematical and logical way but i think i think that i am just as, as as smart in different ways and he kind of scoffed at me like that's really funny and i remember looking at him and feeling really hurt but then also told myself that well he just he doesn't think that way he doesn't know that writing is definitely a skill or that emotional intelligence can be a thing so he did have very exploitative relationships and that spanned across family and friends. So it became immediately clear that he didn't have any really close friends of his own. But I also thought that was just because he really wanted to be with me and he was really so excited about me. But um, I noticed that there were people that he would call. So a couple select friends when he needed some help um, with the Internet and in the house, for example, Or if he had a business idea, he'd want to pull in one of our friends who had a unique area of of education. So he did have um, some male friends around, but really only when he wanted something from them. Um, Never just to, you know, go on a bike ride with the guys or do something social. It was always kind of something that could benefit him, help fix his car, whatever it might be. Um, Did not have close relationships with any of his family. Um, And in fact was, um, didn't think that they gave him enough um, in terms of, of money or time or, or ways to help with. So yeah, no, there was no, there was no friendships unless he could get something tangibly out of them.
0: And did he have any empathy?
2: No. evening my my dad passed away of lung cancer about seven years ago now and uh, the night I got home from the hospital I'd stayed there until he until he passed with my mom and my brother and um, you know I communicated this to my family at home where he was looking after the kids. I got home that night after midnight and my dad had passed away and he was livid he wouldn't speak with me because i was i was so late and i'd left him all that time with the kids and i remember feeling really shocked by it and thinking he must be processing his own grief about my dad in a different way and because otherwise why would he be so angry at me for for staying with my dad this doesn't make any sense but so our our son uh, was 4 at the time when He was diagnosed with a really rare congenital heart disease that had, um, gone undiagnosed, which was, uh, incredibly rare because usually they do those tests at birth and I, I'd had them all done and in utero wasn't detected. Um, but they, the doctors had said that it was very urgent. It was actually really surprising that he had not, had not died, um, so they wanted to do open heart surgery. It was devastating. We knew that our son had difficulties sometimes um, getting in water. His lips would turn purple. He was very uh, crotchety and angsty as a baby, but we couldn't imagine this tiny little little boy um, needing open heart surgery. So I told my husband about it and he seemed to be sad and he hugged me and he said, how could this happen? And he said all the right things. And, um, you know, we comforted each other and we told each other that our son was going to be okay. These doctors were excellent. and But in the weeks that followed, um, he didn't make it to the hospital to do the pre-surgery checks with our son or to um, sit and wait while he had all the EKGs and various specialists check him out and just was very removed from the whole, whole process of going to the hospital. And I remember when they gave our son the anesthetic He, this tiny little body laying in this big machine and he was so vulnerable. And of course we'd signed all the waivers and we didn't know if he was ever gonna come out of this. And I um, couldn't even speak. I was so devastated and, and so upset. And I remember looking at, at my husband and his eyes were just black. He was standing there and he was with me in the hospital for the moment that he went into surgery, but no emotion in his eyes. And I remember thinking, is he worried? Does he does he care? And in that moment, he didn't seem to. And again, I dismissed it as something like you just must be so full of emotion he can't show it.
0: And how did he handle criticism?
2: So if there is any criticism of any kind can you remember to uh, pick your clothes up off the floor? Or can you remember to uh, help me out this weekend with the, with the yard? Like there's a fallen tree that would be met with indignity. And I had said that I was going to take the kids out that day so that he could kind of deal with the tree in the yard and be able to clean it up. And um, I was getting ready with the kids and he was kind of doing work in his office. And I remember saying, are you going to do the tree today? Like, is that still the plan? And he had a fit of rage that I would ask him again about it when I'd already asked him once and um, blamed it on my controlling need to, uh, to ask him for anything. I was groomed to not ask questions, to not ask specific things because I knew it could be met with Rage, And you didn't know necessarily how small the thing was that would set him off. I always attribute it to really like big stress at work, but um, just learn to not, not ask too much. Just make sure that you are always giving and call, always keeping things placid. The other thing that should have been a giant red flag was I, I once asked him, he was really obsessed with working out and keeping his body really tight and um you know i worked out a lot too and i remember asking him one day what would you do if i gained a lot of weight and and you know stopped doing this and he said well i'd divorce you and i said really and he said yeah and he kind of laughed and i remember thinking he wants me to think he's kidding but he also it's a warning i i knew that he would in fact um divorce me, leave me pretty quickly if I deviated from his standard of what I should look like and and what the kind of woman was that he should be with
0: and was he an envious type of person?
2: Yes, he was definitely um, very envious of of specific people who owned specific things and also um believed that that people were envious of of him and of us. I remember him saying that his ex-wife married her boss and that he had, uh, he had a Lamborghini. He was really fixated on the fact that his ex-wife left him for a man who had a Lamborghini. And, um, You know, that that bothered him more than the fact that his first marriage had failed and that he was sad about it It was the possessions that they had owned. They had only had an Audi and this man had that. So he was he was fixated on accumulating the, the nice car, the big house and wanting people to understand that that was as a result of his of his genius and all of the work that he had done in obtaining these things. Um, so I was always being criticized. There was always something wrong with what I did. Um, whether it be I'm doing pull-ups at the gym incorrectly and it was embarrassing. I wasn't trying hard enough. Um, he would often say that I lacked discipline, which even at the time I remember being perplexed by because I was always an early riser, um, who would go to the gym and work really hard and. you know, did all of the things that were hallmarks of discipline. Um, but it was never really enough. I remember when we would fight, and I tried so hard to be this model of a perfect wife and do everything to give him space and time and things that I thought that he would need. Um, but he would criticize on on such small things. So one of his biggest complaints about me was that I would lose lids. So we would have a ton of Tupperware for the kids' lunches, and he would get irate that I didn't match the lids on the top of the Tupperware bins to the bottom or that they would be in different places. And that could cause explosive outbursts, um, dishes left in the sink, um, or the way that I loaded the dishwasher would become, you know, major faults that made me um, an idiot. But yes, I was always, um, there was always something really wrong. And the smallest things seemed to be some of the biggest problems for him. I very rarely heard the word I love you after the initial stage when we first met when he would say it all the time. And he never said it, but I made up a story in my own head that he didn't say he loved me because of his own difficult past. So um, I would ask him questions like, do you like about me? You know, you're you're married to me. And he would say things like, oh, you have nice hair. And I remember that would give me a sinking feeling because like what importance is hair? Like, don't I have other traits that are, are kind of that you like? And, um, he would kind of never, never give that to me. If I won an award at work, I won an award for being in the top 10% of sales one year. And we won an all expenses paid trip to Hawaii. And it was, um, you know, really big accomplishment for me. And I was, I was really proud of myself and, I remember him disregarding it and saying, well, you become like this different person at your job and that's not really you. Like you can kind of fake it for, for short periods of time and that's about it. Um, everything that I did accomplish was kind of a fluke or, or something that was because of him. So if I did something that was kind of an achievement, it was either like no big deal, stupid, or because of something that he did to help me with it. Uh, there was always something that would go wrong, some kind of sabotage on days like Christmas or, um, or birthdays, especially, or anniversaries of death. So I actually began to dread my birthdays after the first couple of years together because something would always go wrong. He would pick a fight and leave the house. Remember, Thanksgiving was always a big one. He would always have some issue explode, and not be there for Thanksgiving dinner, and we would all just be so upset. If there was ever a time that the focus wasn't on him, a business endeavor, some accomplishment that he'd made, um, it turned into really a sad occasion and something that we were all like worried: Is he? Is is he okay? Like it's Christmas. Why isn't Daddy here? Or it's your birthday, Mommy. Where? Why is Daddy so mad? But every um, every birthday, certainly, and most special occasions were kind of marred by this um, explosive and and sad behavior.
0: So here in hindsight, you were able to see while he was sober uh, things that you didn't see before. And everyone will soon hear that you started to learn these things as everything was crumbling for you. But in what you just talked about, we heard entitlement, envy, gaslighting, minimization, blame shifting, lack of empathy, extreme vanity, manipulation, a need for admiration, self-importance. They can't handle criticism. They have rage issues, withholding. They ruin holidays. There's deflecting and there's a lot more that I probably didn't get to there. So now that we all know who your ex-husband truly is while sober. Uh, Take us back to the beginning uh, of the end.
1: Yeah, so I was going on one of another business trip, but this one was relatively close. It was, it was a drivable meeting that I had about, about three hours from my house. So Um, it was dark in the morning when I left and that was pretty typical at about five o'clock in the morning I had lunches made and everything packed and ready to go so that it would be really as easy as possible for him with the kids Um, and I drove for about three and a half hours to my meeting I met up with my um, with my work people at a little breakfast place and I looked at my phone and there was a a messenger message that popped up and i immediately knew it was from him because we only communicated through that medium and the message said where is my scale you left dishes all over the sink you total shit show of a human i cannot wait to leave you and all of your bullshit even though he you know threatened me in past of uh of things changing or um you know told told me that i was controlling and that he he didn't like the things i was doing he had never said before i can't wait to leave you so so i went outside this little restaurant with my coworkers and i texted him back and i just said are you okay and then he didn't respond and i went through the motions of that meeting i remember feeling like i was i was going to throw up as i was making this presentation with my my stomach and my mouth. And I had to drive back the three and a half hours and I couldn't even see the road. I had my head kind of sticking out the car window um, because I thought I was going to throw up and pass out. I I didn't know what I was going to find when I got home. um, I'd already texted my friends, of course, thinking, you know, okay, something's sideways here. Can you go look after the kids? Can you pick them up? They were all used to it and, and so amazing at that point. And I'm so grateful to them. But I raced up the steps of our house and he was sitting there just on the couch in the living room. And I looked at him and he said, I feel better now. And he had like his, he had his arms outstretched to me, like come and give me a hug. And I, I just looked at him and I was so confused. Because I didn't know, did he not remember the text saying that he couldn't wait to leave me, that I was a shit show of a human and 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 that he didn't reply to my panic to reply, And I thought, was he losing his mind? Am I losing my mind? Um, and he was making motions, like trying to take off my shirt, and I was thinking, does he want does he want to have sex with me now? like he but he had this look in his eyes, and they were super sad again. and it was that look of vulnerability and the man that I recognized again and, and so, so damaged. And he didn't say, I'm sorry. He just said, I feel better now. And I said, and again, it makes me feel shame that it was, that I thought I was this, you know, strong and powerful woman. And I said, I'm glad you're okay. Um, Okay. But... That was really the day that kicked off uh, this this spiraled behavior, because after that day, the good times were really no more. It was like this mask had slipped, like he could treat me any way he wanted and say anything he wanted to me. I was still going to kind of come back and almost grovel to him a little bit, not make him take accountability. And so um, he was free to treat me in whatever way he wanted. So. Shortly after this, this day um, where the mask slip in late 2019, he kind of had like what I refer to as the mother of all overdoses. After the overdose in late 2019, he decided that he didn't want traditional treatment, but he had heard of this tool of this plant medicine called ayahuasca that could potentially help with addiction issues. It was... A really big risk, because this plant medicine was a drug in itself. It was the m- world's most powerful psychedelic. The ayahuasca, to our dismay, seemed to not help the, the problem at all, but just really exacerbated it. It just it went completely out of control. So he got arrested in Airbnbs for psychosis. he was He was pounding on ceilings and and screaming. Um, naked during these these binges, and I didn't know what to do. I wrote to psychiatrists at hospitals asking for emergency evaluations. I, I I got our therapist into a room, and nobody knew what to do. He thought he was actually totally fine. And he acquired a new girlfriend, um a single mom of two little girls, just right off the bat um about this was about a month after his overdose. And uh, this single mom of two little girls, we had mutual friends. And so I actually, in a stupor of disbelief, kind of messaged her saying what was actually happening and that he was fairly dangerous and and kind of in psychosis and delusional sometimes. Um, And she just quickly blocked me. And um, I got a letter from Matt's lawyer about a week after reaching out to her saying, that I was prohibited from talking to any of Matt's girlfriends or future girlfriends or anything about him and what um, my experience with him was. I had my own therapist that I worked with on my own stuff, but I also had a therapist that had worked with both Matt and I in a couple's capacity over some of this, trying to get the root of his behavior and also, you know, why why the drug episodes and the episodes of meanness kept happening. And she was the one who kind of gently suggested when I expressed confusion about what was happening around me that I get a book on covert narcissistic personality disorder. And I'd never heard of it as far as I knew. Matt had bipolar disorder, which he'd been diagnosed with, and obvious substance abuse disorder. Um, But as I started to read through the first chapters of of this book that she had suggested, I just I felt this, this terror and like uh, like this this utter recognition and uh, oh my God, I'm mad as a covert narcissist because essentially I was I was falling in love with myself. I was falling in love with this familiar thing that what I thought was different than all those past men, but really it was just the shallow readback of me. So the, the, the last quote I'll read here is um, the one that the author wrote saying, covert narcissists are often chameleons that become whatever person they are around. And so when Matt had written a letter to everyone at his intervention post overdose in 2019, he had said exactly this. So what he wrote in that letter to all of us, I can be a chameleon, shifting personalities to what I think people want me to be. So everything was finally clicking into place and it wasn't how I wanted it to be because it essentially meant that my 10-year marriage was a lie, um, but I finally under, understood it. So I read that book like all in one set sitting and I, I sent passages to my friends who'd been in the trenches with me and they were like, oh my God, it's not is he even bipolar? It's definitely not the medications and it's not the drugs frying his brain. Like we all thought, perhaps it was just that the mask had slipped.
0: So after uh, that happened, I guess, you know, all these realizations are going on. he has this new life in this new girlfriend with two children. Um, what is the relation to him and your family now? Does he see you or do you speak to him or does he see any of the kids?
1: I I did go to a lawyer and I was able to get a court order that said that he could only see the kids under supervised visitation. Um, you know, he had to agree to that at the time and I wanted him to see the kids. I very much believed that still he might he might be able to be in their lives. And so we agreed that my best friend, who was also a very good friends with him and one of his best friends could be supervisors while he kind of worked through the worst of this addiction and he could spend time with his kids that way. But what ended up happening is that, you know, he didn't think that he had an issue even still and thought that it was very controlling and and cruel of me basically to put the stipulation in even though he signed off on it he just refused to see the kids without a supervisor so I would try and set up times for him to see them and he would cancel last minute Um, he did have a few supervised visits with my best friend but He would say strange things to the kids um, when they were a little bit out of earshot of the supervisor. So, for example, when he was on a pool uh, session with them, with my best friend, he took our son into the steam room and said, You know, mommy is lying. Daddy is not sick. Daddy has nothing wrong with him. And it's just that mommy is a control freak and mommy doesn't want you to have a daddy. And so, you know, my kids got home from that visit completely in tears. My youngest son, whispered to my oldest son, no, I heard from daddy that he's not actually sick. It's mommy making up this stuff. And my oldest son said, oh no, mommy's not lying. Like daddy is really sick. And, you know, there was nights where the kids couldn't sleep and just traumatized and super sad. And, you know, my friend who was a supervisor in that visit didn't have much interest in continuing to supervise after that because she felt terrible that that happened on her watch. And she'd said, look, like, it needs to be paid. I don't know. I don't know that I can protect the kids well enough. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And then when it went to paid only, he just decided not to see them at all. He wanted either to see them alone or with his girlfriend, who obviously just did not know anything about the situation except for what he told her. So he just didn't see them at all. Um, It's now been, it's been three and a half years since the overdose um, and it's been about a year since he last saw the kids at all. Um, he has since uh, shed his whole group of friends and family. Um, his mom, you know, had, had been diagnosed with a, a cluster B personality disorder herself, but uh, his family is still in the kids' lives and my family and friends are. And Matt has, has since moved away to a very far away country with a a woman who believes you know that he has a controlling and bitter ex-wife who won't let him see his kids
0: and how are you doing
1: um you know i am i am good i am so grateful i have to say that during my marriage i didn't have a lot of close friends i was really worried about going out for fear of what might happen while i was gone So I really just had my family, but my friends have been so absolutely wonderful in stepping up and helping me get the kids to soccer games and in, you know, helping me formulate responses to, um, you know, erratic, volatile emails that he sends me and just being, being wonderful. So I've got a job that allows me to take care of them all. The kids are all doing amazingly well, considering they're sad that they don't have a father in their life but my hope in talking to you and in being open about my own experience is that it doesn't repeat this cycle of generational trauma and in teaching them that the happiness of other people is up to other people and their own happiness is is up to them and that they they can't fix anyone and hopefully they'll recognize early warning signs and choose a healthy and And wonderful
0: partner themselves. So, if you had to give some words of wisdom uh, for everyone uh, before we leave, what would it be?
1: You are enough. I think is the big one. So, I passed a sign that someone had graffitied midway through my journey with all of this, and I took a picture of it on my phone because I think that it took me all of this to realize that I am enough all on my own, that you don't need a a man or a woman or a partner or significant other to heal that trauma inside. It's about going in and figuring out where that need is coming from and addressing it with knowledge and with the people that really do love you no matter, no no matter what your preconceived faults are.
0: Well, Danielle, I really want to thank you for being with us here today and sharing your story. You know, we've had, forget how many stories we've had on the show where you know it's really hard to figure out what's been going on and then eventually once the relationship gets severed you really start to see or to right toward the end you start to see who this person was and for a long time you know you're dealing with someone who is just an addict and you're trying to help them through their issues that they're going through because you understand the plight of an addict and everyone knows that you know an addict is seen as having a disease and you know you're doing your best to help them you want them to get help but it isn't until when you're you know when you're dealing with someone who's beyond just an addict and they just don't aren't just uh you know verbally abusive or um, you know, just not treating you right and, and stonewalling and, and silent treatment, but then eventually sever a full family tie as if nothing was wrong and um, make you a villain, uh, you know, to whoever is the new person that they're in a relationship with and they lose their whole entire family. You know, it's you've you been. That's when you kind of have to go back and and look at things and, and really make sense of what was actually going on. And it's a very difficult thing to go through for yourself and for your children. And everyone today is, you know, listening to you and rallying around you. And I know there's a lot more people who are going through the exact same thing that you have been through and you're going to help so many people today. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story.
1: Well, thank you so much for doing what you do, because I think it has the power to change lives. And I'm really, really grateful that I stumbled across your podcast, too.
0: Well, thank you. And if you want to be a guest like Danielle was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There, you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do read all of our instructions and send it in the format that we ask for. Also at our website, we have our very own Safe Social Network support group. So if you go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, there's a support button on the top of the page press that button and it takes you to our network there. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum board there for you to post on, get the validation you need to validate other survivors as well. It's a great group of people on our support boards and in our in our Zoom meetings. So join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. There, they have articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you are dealing with. They Every phone number, every email address, every website address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you are from, domestic shelters has it all. It is a wonderful organization. So please do visit them today. It is a free resource. And that is it for our show today. So for myself and Danielle, we hope you have a good night.